worship team and the choir and everybody. They did such a good job. They're not up here for applause. Uh, they're not up here to be recognized. Uh, they're up here because they love their risen Savior. And they put a lot of extra time into preparing for today, not because they wanted to perform, but because they love Jesus and their lives have been changed by Jesus. And also say the same for the, the team in the back who you can't see. They've done the same as well. They've, they've put in the time. They've put in the extra work. I always feel bad for the media team because you never notice them unless something goes wrong, and then everybody notices them. So thank you to you guys. You guys are doing a great job helping us, leading us as we worship our risen Savior. Well, throughout this week, we have been looking at all the events that lead up to today. We've been looking, up, uh, looking at the events that lead up to the resurrection of Jesus. And we've seen how last Sunday, Jesus was celebrated as king. We have seen Jesus weep over the unbelief of the city that he loved. We have seen Jesus as he has cleansed the temple from those who would hinder people's true worship and how he evaded the verbal traps of the religious leaders. We also saw on Friday how he was betrayed, arrested, and then crucified. His followers over this week, this past week, have experienced a full range of emotions from triumphant gladness to confusion, grief, sorrow, and for some, even guilt. Despite the fact that Jesus had told them multiple times that he would be crucified and then come back to life three days later, the hope of political overthrow and then the shock of him literally being crucified and laying in a tomb was too much to process. After the burial of Jesus on Friday afternoon, the disciples have largely gone into hiding out of fear, the Bible tells us. But early Sunday morning, the first day of the week, the Bible tells us, a few brave ladies get up before the sun is even up and they approach the tomb, which is where we are going to pick up our story. To conclude the narrative this week, I'm going to read through the chapter in the Bible of John chapter number 20. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardback one close to you. If you're unfamiliar of where John 20 is in the Bible, grab one of those black hardback copies and turn to page 963, and then look for the big number 20. That'll be where we are reading this morning. John chapter number 20. We're going to read all the verses in this chapter all 31 of them, starting in verse number one. The Bible says, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw the tomb, she saw the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Uh, we know that is the apostle John. She went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciples went out, heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen clothes lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloth, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary 
stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been laying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Whom is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was a gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. When it was evening on the first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger in the marks in the mark of the nails, and put my hand into his side. I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. I pray that the preaching of your word would be a proclamation of good news, healing, and liberty. I pray that you would open our minds to understand and to contemplate wondrous things from your word. Give us life and strength through your word this morning. I pray that your church would delight in your instruction and it would be planted in the good soil of open hearts so that we would be like righteous trees planted by flowing streams, bearing fruit, to bring you glory. Amen. Every element of this narrative that we've been considering so far this week has led up to this moment. On Friday, we looked at the death of Jesus and the event that led up to his crucifixion. Saturday is historically known as Silent Saturday because 
it was silent as Jesus lay in the tomb. The disciples did not know or did not realize that Jesus was going to rise from the dead the next morning. And so they were silent in their grief, in their stricken state. Saturday was silent. But early Sunday morning, before the sun was even up, these ladies approached the tomb. Other biblical accounts of this moment tell us that as they approached the tomb, there was multiple ladies there. As they approached the tomb, they wonder among themselves how they're going to move this giant stone that is blocking the entrance of the tomb so that they can go down into the tomb and anoint Jesus' body with the customary spices that was their rituals. And as they're wondering this, as they're making their way to the tomb, the Bible tells us that there was a violent earthquake as an angel literally descends from heaven to earth and rolls the stone away. And when they arrive at the tomb, they find the angel there sitting on the stone, empty. They then depart to tell the other disciples, as we just read, Peter and John race to the empty tomb. Mary then encounters the risen Jesus. The Gospel of Luke tells us that after Mary encounters Jesus, Jesus then goes and spends the afternoon with two men who are walking to a village called Emmaus. He uses what we call the Old Testament of the Bible to help them truly understand what his purpose as the Messiah was. Then that evening, he again appears to his disciples, and they believe. And as John concludes chapter number 20, he tells us why he is writing. The Apostle John is writing this entire narrative so that we too can believe Jesus is the Messiah. And that in believing, we can have life. Now, as we've been considering this narrative throughout the week, we've also seen how Psalm 118 has come into play a few times. Last Sunday, the triumphant crowd quoted Psalm 118, recognizing that Jesus was the fulfillment of it. Friday, we saw how Jesus was the stone rejected by the religious leaders and how he became the sacrifice given to God toward the end of the psalm. And then the psalm concludes by saying, in verse 29, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. And that is exactly what we're doing today. We come gathered together to give thanks to the Lord because his faithful love endures forever. Now throughout his ministry, Jesus proved his love for people time and time again. As you read the events of Jesus and as you read the story of his life in the first four books of the New Testament known as the Gospels, Jesus proves time and time again that he loves people sacrificially, radically even going out of his way to heal people and to help people, to point people towards their true hope. But he definitively proved and demonstrated his love this Easter weekend 2,000 years ago. The writer of John, a few chapters before the one we just read, said in John 15, 13, no one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. In that short little verse, Jesus declares us his friends and then goes on to demonstrate in the greatest way possible that he loves us. There's no more room to wonder. There's no more room to doubt. Jesus has proven in the greatest way possible that he loves us. Let that reality sink in for a moment. The creator of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all that is, has proven, has declared, has demonstrated, has given his love towards you when he died on the cross. If you're here this morning and you've professed Jesus to be Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, like we just read about, this verse also says Jesus is your friend. And it doesn't just say it, Jesus says it. I call you friends. Let that sink in for a moment. 
For all who believe in him, Jesus says, you're my friend. So the question I want to propose to us this morning is a simple one. Do you believe that Jesus loves you? To help us ponder that question, I want to rewind from the story that we're considering this morning and go all the way back to the very beginning, if that's okay. The Bible tells us that God made everything through Jesus. And it also says everything that God made through Jesus was good. Think about it. There was no sin. There was no pain. There was no suffering. There was nothing wrong. Everything in the created world was perfect. But not long after that moment, something went wrong. Just a few short chapters into the Bible, we see man wanted to be like God. And as a result, sin entered into the world. Another New Testament writer by the name of Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 5, verse number 12. He said, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. The Bible is full of stories that illustrate how sin has ruined people's lives and even ruined entire nations. It also shows us throughout the pages of the Bible the consequences of sin and what sin looks like. Paul would later say in the book of Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 through 21, now the works of the flesh are obvious. He's telling us what sin looks like. It's, it's obvious. It's very apparent. He says sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. He says, I am warning you about these things, as I've warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Going back to the book of Romans, he said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The consequence of sin, as we have seen, is death. When God originally created wor the world, death was not a part of the picture, but because of sin, death has now entered the picture. And because of sin, death reigns. And we are separated from God. Those who practice these things won't inherit the kingdom of God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is something that has a 100% infection rate. None of us can honestly say that we are without sin. And because of that sin, the Bible clearly states we cannot have a relationship with God on our own. That's what it means to fall short of his glory. That's what Paul was helping us understand there in Galatians 5. And not only does our sin separate us from God, but it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be punished. The ultimate end of sin is death. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Paul is helping us understand that the payment we deserve because of sin is death. John, who we just read a few moments ago in John 20, he said at the very beginning of his uh, gospel narrative, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. This tells us that Jesus has to correct sin. Sin has to be punished. It has to be dealt with. Every human rightly deserves the just punishment for the sin that we commit. For God to allow evil to go unpunished would be cruel and unloving. As humans, we intrinsically understand how love and justice are interconnected. When we see justice not being carried out on the behalf of someone, 
we understand how that's not loving. We don't look at that and say that's love. We look at that and say that's unloving. That's apathetic. How can sin, how can evil go unchecked like that? God is loving. And because of that, he cannot allow evil to reign on what he created. And so God, in his love, says, I have to deal with sin. I have to punish sin. It can't go uncorrected. It can't go unchecked. Unfortunately, though, that leaves all of us on the wrong side of the equation. Because we've all sinned. You have, I have, none of us can escape this. Unfortunately, we're all on the wrong side of that. But fortunately, also in his love, God made a promise to humanity. God had a plan. Paul would later go on to write uh, somebody who he mentored, a young pastor by the name of Titus. And in the very second book of his letter to Titus, he says, In the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. God had a plan. For you and for me, before we were even a thought, before we were even a blip on the radar, before time itself began, God had a plan. He wasn't going to leave his creation on the wrong side of the sin equation. He wasn't going to leave us to suffer the punishment that we deserve in our sin. God came to earth to rescue us in the person of Jesus. Paul said in Romans 3, 26, God presented him, God presented Jesus to demonstrate, to prove, to verify his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, Jesus is God. He came to this earth in the form of a man. He did many amazing miracles and uh, fulfilled hundreds of prophecies while he was on earth to validate his claim to be God. Jesus had to be God. We can't just leave Jesus in the realm of, well, he was a good teacher. He was a powerful historical figure. Jesus could not have been good and claimed what he claimed if it was not in fact true. C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia, helps us understand this. He says, Jesus has to be Lord, or he was a liar or a lunatic. He was a liar, claiming to be God when he wasn't, or he was a lunatic. But how does that explain the miracles? How does that explain the way he fulfilled prophecy? He is, in fact, Lord. And he lived a life that was free from sin. As Paul said in Romans 3, he demonstrated his righteousness. He was proven to be just. He was tempted in all points like as we are. All the sin that we are tempted by, Jesus was also tempted by. But because he was God, because he was righteous, he proved that he was just by resisting that temptation. Paul would go on to say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made the one who did not know sin. He's talking about Jesus here. Jesus did not know sin. Never once did he do anything wrong. He lived a perfect life. Can you imagine growing up with a literally perfect older brother? I mean, many of us older siblings already think we're perfect, even though we're not. Jesus actually was. He did not know sin. But he didn't live this perfect life so that he could look down his nose at his creation. No, in fact, Jesus would often call out hypocritical self-righteousness. While he was on earth, he spent time with very sinful people, and the religious leaders of the day hated him for it. How could you spend time with those people? If you were really the Messiah, if you were really a prophet, you wouldn't know who these people are. You wouldn't spend time with them. Jesus knew who they were. He knew what they did, and yet in his love, he spent time with them. 
Jesus hung out with a lot of people who looked more like that list we just read a few minutes ago in Galatians 5. But he himself was without sin. His entire life was characterized by perfect love, perfect obedience, and perfect righteousness. Now you may be wondering, why does this matter? Why is it so important that Jesus lived a perfect life? It's important because we cannot save ourselves. One sinner can't save another sinner. I can't save you. If you're a believer, you can't save your friend. The blind can't lead the blind. We need someone who is without sin to save us from our sin. Paul would go on to say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. Jesus was punished for our sin. If Jesus had sin in his life, he couldn't be punished for our sin because he would have been punished for his own. Jesus lived a perfect life so that he could offer himself up as a payment for our sin. So that he could tell God the Father, I will absorb the punishment for their sin. I don't deserve it, but I will take it so that they can be made the righteousness of God. When Jesus died on the cross, he willingly took the punishment for our sins. That is what Paul means in 2 Corinthians when he says he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. On Friday, we saw how God the Father poured out the wrath of all, of, all, of all the sin, of all who would believe on Jesus. But as we're celebrating today, Jesus did not stay dead on that cross. He is not still in the tomb. He came back to life. He rose from the dead. That means Jesus not only took the penalty for our sin, but it also means that he is more powerful than death. He is more powerful than sin. We saw earlier how the result of sin is death. And Jesus took our sin, and then he died, but then he was proved he was stronger by raising from the dead. While Jesus was on the cross, God placed our sin on Jesus, and he died. But he did not stay dead. He conquered death. I love the lyrics of that song, Death Was Arrested. And now because death was arrested, because death was conquered, we go free. You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus are so much more than just Jesus taking our punishment. It is Jesus taking our punishment. He takes the punishment for our sins, but then he also gives us the credit for the perfect life he lived. That's why it's so important Jesus lived the perfect life. He gives us credit for the perfect life we have. That, that's what Paul means when he says, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And what that means is we who believe, we now have a glorious hope that's beyond death. Death has lost its power. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, death, where's your sting? It has no more power over us because we're in Christ and Christ conquered death. Paul said in Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God. That's God's perfect standard that none of us can meet. That because of sin, we all fall short of. He tells us that Christ meets that standard and then gives us the benefits of him meeting that standard. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So when you believe in Jesus, you now then get the righteousness of God on you, on your account. He makes you righteous. He makes you holy so that now you can have a relationship with God, so that now you can have hope beyond death. But I love the last little phrase of that verse. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. 
I love that little phrase. That's Paul's way of saying, regardless of who you are, regardless of where you come from, regardless of what you look like or what you've done, the righteousness of God is available to you. You might say, Pastor Nick, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I did last night. I don't. But I believe what he says here. The righteousness of God is available to you. There's no distinction. Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus rising from the dead, is more powerful than any sentence. All of us are guilty. All of us stand condemned. But Jesus offers all of us life, his righteousness. The righteousness of God is available to you. Jesus loves you so much that he willingly took the penalty for your sin, died in your place, and gives you his righteousness. Jesus meets God's standard for you. This is why we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Paul would go on to say in chapter 10 of the book of Romans, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That's you acknowledging he is God, acknowledging he is the Messiah, acknowledging that he is king. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is who he says he is. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with a heart, resulting in righteousness. And one confesses with a mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame since there's no distinction between Jew or Greek. Paul's like, it doesn't matter your ethnic background. There's no distinction anymore. All who confess will be given salvation because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When you place your faith in Jesus, God justifies you. He makes it just as if you never sinned and just as if you'd always been righteous, just as if you'd always done what's right, just as if you always perfectly loved, just as if you lived just like Jesus did. Ephesians 1, 7 tells us, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Imagine that. Full forgiveness. Say, Pastor Nick, you don't know what I did. You're right, I don't, but Jesus offers you forgiveness for what you did. You can be forgiven, friend. Jesus is like, if you believe in me, if you accept my sacrifice on your account, you will be forgiven of all of your sins. Whether you're here this morning and you're seeking, but you haven't found Jesus yet, or you're new to the faith, or you've been a believer longer than some of us have been alive, I want to encourage you, let your affections get wrapped up in the forgiveness that Jesus won for you. This was the promise God made to humanity before time began. This is how we know God loves us. This is why we celebrate the reality of his faithful love that endures forever. And John tells us at the end of chapter 20, when we believe, we get life. There is life after death. That's not a fairy tale. That's not a myth. It's true. Life after death, heaven is available to all who call on him. But it's also amazing life while we're still here on earth. Earlier in his gospel narrative, John calls it, recording the words of Jesus, calls it abundant life. This means you can experience real satisfaction. This means you can experience real peace. When the world is going cray-cray, you can be at peace. 
It means when you sin, there's forgiveness. It means you have access to the grace of God, which allows you to live just as if Jesus was living in your shoes. As Christians, we have everything that we need to live a life of godliness. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. See, the new has come. Paul would say in Romans 6.6, 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless. Before we were saved, we were enslaved to sin, Paul tells us, and we had no power over it. But he says, when we were saved, that old self was crucified. That old self that was powerless over sin is now dead. It has been crucified so that, we might, so that it might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. For those of us in Christ, for those of us that believe, sin no longer has any power over us. We're free. Amen. That list we read earlier in this message in Galatians 5 no longer describes you. You say, but sometimes I struggle with the things on that list. There's forgiveness. Those sins no longer have any power over you. You are now God's child. Galatians 3, 26, for through faith, you're all sons of God in Christ Jesus. God is your father. And I, and I love what he, told, what he told Mary. Go tell them that I'm going to God, my father, and your father. That means Jesus is our big brother. We're now God's children. Join heirs with Jesus, as Paul would say. And every day we can wake up and walk in the same power that raised Jesus from the grave. Sin has lost its grip on you, my friend. There may be struggle. There will be struggle. There's times when temptation is strong and it's a battle. But my friend, what the resurrection means is that sin no longer has power over you. So just like Jesus got up and walked out of that grave, you can get up and walk away and say no to that temptation and no to that sin. Regardless of whether or not we sin or fail to live out the Christian life perfe perfectly, God will never leave us or forsake us because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Not because we're good or we deserve it. We don't. We've already seen we deserve to be punished, but in love, God gave us Jesus. And for those of us that are in Jesus, we now have the promise that God will never leave us or forsake us. I love what John says in chapter 10. Quoting Jesus, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my, my hand. My father who has given them me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. When you believe in Jesus, that means you are forever secure. God's got you. No one can pull you out of his hand, not even yourself. You can't jump out of that grip. <laughs> you can't sin your way out of that grip. God loves you, and he has given you the power to say no to sin. So that you can live a life that looks more and more like Jesus. Because there's no better way to live, friend. So back to our initial question. Do you believe that Jesus loves you? Let me talk to the believers who are in the room or who are listening online for a moment. Believers, has the cares of this world caused you to doubt or forget that Jesus loves you? Have you allowed something else to determine your joy? Something other than the love of Jesus. Maybe you're listening this morning 
and you say, I'm a believer, I'm placing my faith and trust in Jesus, but Pastor Nick, it's been a long time since I walked with God. Friend, don't let the lies of the enemy or the cares of this world cause you to forget or lose sight of the fact that your big brother in heaven, Jesus, he loves you. He gave himself for you. And because you have placed your faith in him, he has given you the power to walk in newness of life. Remind yourself of his love for you. Remind yourself of the power of his resurrection and walk in the life that God saved you for. Perhaps you're here this morning and you'd be considered a faithful Christian. You're here every week. You love the Lord. Throughout the week, you regularly spend time with him. The love of Jesus is no no less relevant for you. Continue to allow his love to be the driving force in your life. Paul said, probably, arguably, he's, he's a hero of the faith. We could probably argue that he was one of the most faithful Christians that we have ever seen in history. He said in 2 Corinthians 5.14 that it was the love of Christ that compels him. So if you're here today and you'd say, I am faithful in my walk with Jesus, and you don't mean that in a proud way, it's just a statement of reality, let me encourage you to continue to allow your heart, continue to allow your affections and everything you do to be driven by his love. Easter is no less awesome and glorious for us. But maybe you're here this morning and you're not a believer. One, thanks for being here. I know it's awkward to come into a gathering of believers when you're like, I don't know if I believe what these people do. They all seem a little crazy. (laughs) Thank you for coming here. Maybe you're here today and you're just seeking answers. Life has been hard. You look around at everything that's happened in the last few years, and you're wondering, there's got to be more to life than this. And you're here, and you're seeking answers. Maybe you're here simply because it's Easter, and it seemed like the thing to do. You're coming here to make Grandma happy. Allow me to ask you to consider the love of Jesus for you. Do you believe that Jesus loves you? Like I said earlier in the service, if you're seeking, or if you have questions, You might be listening and say, Pastor Nick, you keep quoting the Bible. I don't even know if I believe the Bible. Help me. We have a resource table in the back. I would love to meet you. I'd love to speak with you. Hopefully answer your questions, but at a minimum, put some resources in your hands. We'll give you a Bible. We'll give you a book that explains why we believe the Bible. We have a little mini book back there that walks through the gospel and your new life in Christ. I'd love to put those into your hands free of charge and just meet you and speak with you. Hopefully we can answer some of your questions and put a few resources into your hands. You have questions, but you're like, I got to go. There's a ham in the oven. Let me encourage you to at least stop by that table and leave your email and number. If you're here this morning and you feel led to place your faith in Jesus this morning, meet me at the table too. I would love to open up the Bible and walk you through how you can place your faith in Jesus. I can't save you, but I can introduce you to the guy who can. If you came because a friend invited you, let me encourage you to speak to them. If you're more comfortable talking to them, talk to them. I'll put them on the spot. They would love to open up a Bible and show you how you can know for sure that you have a relationship with Jesus. Every person that came as a guest this morning should have got a little gift bag. And in that gift bag, there's one of those little books. It's called The Story of His Glory. It just walks through the gospel. It shows you scripture after scripture that shows you how you can know for sure you have a relationship with Jesus and then what it means to experience new life in him. Take out that book. Ask the friend that brought you, what does this mean? Would you introduce me to Jesus? Would you lead me to him so that he can save me? We as a church family would love to get to know you and walk with you while you seek those answers. I'll be the first person to tell you we are not perfect. 
We've got a lot of things that we're working through. But we love pursuing Jesus together because he's our everything. And we would love to help you do that as well. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grant us, according to the riches of your glory, to be strengthened with power in our inner being through your spirit, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here this morning and they've never initially placed their faith and trust in you, I pray that today would be the day that they do that. I pray that we as your children would be rooted and firmly established in love so that we could comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height, and depth of your love. I pray that we would know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that we may be filled with all the fullness of you. I pray that as your spirit awakens our heart to your love, we would believe that you have given us everything we need to be witnesses of Jesus. We ask this because you're able to do above and beyond what we could ever ask or think according to the power that works in us, the power that resurrected Christ from the grave. To you be glory in this church and the global church. And in Christ.